Welcome back to the Love Letters and Mixtapes podcast. I am so glad you're here. And after you listen to this episode, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share. I see that so many of you are listening to and using the Daily Affirmations episodes, and I hope they continue to be tools that you can use for support, encouragement, and strengthening your daily meditation practice. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at Love Letters and Mixtapes. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this podcast. Snake River Roasting Company is an organic coffee roaster located in the beautiful mountains of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Not only do they roast award-winning coffees, but their mission and commitment to supporting the rights of women farmers around the world are just incredible. I start every single morning with a cup of their Fire on the Mountain organic coffee blend. And if you're anything like me, and you're particular about what you eat and drink and how it's sourced, Snake River Roasting Company has a free shipping code for you to give their delicious coffee a taste. Head to their website, snakeriverroastingco.com and use the code COFFEELOVE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic coffee orders. Well, this week we are talking about morning, mindfulness, messiness, and maybes. I could definitely just sit here talking about how I am crippled by allergies still in the Pacific Northwest and can barely breathe as I'm trying to record this podcast, but I'm going to let that one go because I think you guys have heard enough about that. And I'll just pick up on the topic for today. And you might be listening to this podcast and wondering how any of these things are related to one another. I mean, how is morning mindfulness, messiness, and maybes even a cohesive thought? But in my world, these things tend to walk hand in hand on a broad highway. I have facilitated so many groups in my life and walked caregivers and family members through their end-of-life experiences and in one-on-one sessions. And when you do this work, you begin to see patterns rise to the surface. One thing I've always noticed is how we allow the perceived quality, virtue, resolutions or goodness of our relationships, the way we showed up or the way we hid or the way we ended relationships to impact our ability to allow ourselves to mourn and grieve. And although we would probably rarely ever place this type of blame or harsh judgment on others or deprive them of the opportunity to just be human and grieve their losses, I find that we do this to ourselves almost too easily. We can get stuck in the messy feelings and miss the actual message that is delivered to us through the imperfectness of these relationships or our responses to them, or the slow-moving pace at which we integrate the lessons. Like if I didn't get it really quickly, then it's pointless? No, not at all. Sometimes the lessons do take time. And sometimes it's the way that we failed ourselves or others that becomes a lifelong lesson. And then we'll get close to understanding it, and then we suddenly veer away, and then we come close to understanding it again, and then we take some kind of emotional U-turn. And just because there's an ebb and flow to our understanding and acceptance of these things doesn't lessen their value. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. You know, maybe we weren't meant to take these lessons in like a pill and have them immediately absorbed by us. And yes, there could have been easier ways to learn certain lessons. I know that for sure in my own life, but some of us just didn't show up for class that day. 
So these are the lessons that we actually get delivered to us through the medicine of slow-moving mourning. David Sedaris is such a beautiful comedic short story writer, but the older we both get, the more I realize his true gift is exploring grief without catastrophizing it, without cheapening it, and without distorting it. He writes about grief in a way that feels most familiar, experiencing grief as we walk, trudge, or trip through the mundane aspects of our lives. His observations of the most quotidian aspects of grief is what makes his writing so authentic. And I think it's really important to read stories of mourning that are messy and complicated, where the lessons are not immediately accessible. Grief is not reserved for the perfect or pious ones among us. Imperfect people who fail others and make life-altering mistakes also grieve, and we never see it or discuss it because it's precisely our unattractive humanness that distorts our perception. Our humanity, complete with character defects and failings, might make us unlikable characters, but it also makes us very relatable. And in my own experience, grief is less like the dramatic orchestra that the movies would have us believe it to be. There's rarely an instant resolution or an aha moment or certainty of feelings. Instead, grief and mourning remind me of the constant drip of a faucet, the ticking in your car, or the hum of an old air conditioner. It's always there no matter what you do. You can't fix it. You can't get rid of it. And at some point, you just get used to the sound. I read David Sedaris's short story, The Spirit World, almost two years ago, and I'm still not okay. <laughs> I, I loved it so much, it scared me. And in fact, his book, Calypso, should be required reading. No one should be able to write like that. And I wanted to share an excerpt from his piece titled Ashes from another one of his book of short stories titled Naked. And here it is. Over the years, our mother had repeatedly voiced her desire to be cremated. We would drive past a small forest fire or observe the pillars of smoke rising from a neighbor's chimney, and she would crush her cigarette, saying, That's what I want, right there. Do whatever you like with the remains. Sprinkle them into the ashtrays of a fine hotel. Give them to smart-ass children for Christmas. Hand them over to the Catholics to rub into their foreheads. Just make sure I'm cremated. Oh, Sharon, my father would groan, you don't know what you want. He'd say it as though he himself had been cremated several times in the past, but had finally wised up and accepted burial as the only sensible option. We laid our Econo Lodge bedspreads over the dewy grass of the cemetery, smoking joints and trying to imagine a life without our mother. If there was a heaven, we probably shouldn't expect to find her there. Neither did she deserve to roam the fiery tar pits of hell surrounded for all eternity by the same bleepheads who brought us strip malls and theme restaurants. There must exist some middle ground, a place where one was tortured on a daily basis but still allowed a few moments of pleasure, taken wherever they could find it. That place seemed to be Raleigh, North Carolina. So why the big fuss? Why couldn't she just stay where she was and not have cancer? Ever since arriving at the motor lodge, we'd gone back and forth from one room to another, holding secret meetings and exchanging private bits of information. We hoped that by preparing ourselves for the worst, we might be able to endure the inevitable with some degree of courage or grace. Anything we forecasted was puny compared to the future that awaited us. 
You can't brace yourself for famine if you've never known hunger. It is foolish to even try. The most you can do is eat up while you still can, stuffing yourself, shoveling it in with both hands, and licking clean the plates, recalling every course in vivid detail. Our mother was back in her room and very much alive, probably watching a detective program on television. Maybe that was her light in the window, her figure stepping out onto the patio to light a cigarette. We told ourselves she probably wanted to be left alone. That's how stoned we were. We'd think of this later, each in our own separate way. I, myself, tend to dwell on the stupidity of pacing a cemetery while she sat, frightened and alone, staring at the tip of her cigarette and envisioning herself, clearly now, in ashes. Every single one of us has our own story of messy mourning, whether that is around death, the loss of a relationship, a job, a way of life, an addiction, or a coping method. Losing these things feels like losing a best friend sometimes. Some of these things have walked with us through every stage of our lives. So maybe take a moment and think about what that is for you right now in this moment. What have you been mourning? What have you not made space to grieve? Or what do you feel that there's no space to grieve? What do you do to distract yourself from the lessons? What would it feel like to let go of the certainty of what you perceive it all to be and to introduce maybe a few maybes into the story? What would it feel like to detach from that old story even further? And make space for mindfulness in your morning. Where are you today? And is there any chance that you are mourning the life you had pre-pandemic? And do you feel guilty for even thinking about it? Are you mourning some of the missed opportunities? Are you mourning the future or maybe the relationships that are just suddenly no longer possible? And is there space for us to mourn as a collective? Do you feel ashamed any time you try to explore this topic with other people, despite all of us having lost something over the last year and a half? Does your grief ever bring up big feelings of shame, as if you're the only one out of sync for feeling everything so deeply and possibly without the ability to articulate it or communicate it with others? One thing I've always noticed about a period of mourning is just how isolating it can be. A big reason that I began this podcast is to create a tiny energetic corner in the world where you could listen in and not feel so alone in your conflicting feelings. Because I literally have no answers for you. And there's a million podcasts out there about experts just telling you something, almost like waving a finger in your face. And that's not me. That's not me at all. And I suppose that that's my niche. I have no answers, but I definitely have interesting questions. And I'm happy to communicate and connect with people about all the things we believe that we can't show other people. I might have single-handedly created a new podcast niche, and that is discomfort. So where am I uncomfortable lately? I've been asking myself that question over and over again. And when this podcast airs, it'll be July 19th, and that is the anniversary of the death of a very close family member. 
And last year on this day, I wrote in my journal, as I do every single day. And I'd like to share what I wrote with you. I woke up with the heaviest feeling today. I've gotten into the habit, like most of us, I assume, of saying, I know it's a pandemic, and I know I'm unemployed, and I know this year has been terrible, and I know that everything seems hopeless, but I have no real reason to feel down. I abuse myself with cheerfulness and gratitude sometimes, and when I do that, I find myself scribbling over authentic feelings and rewriting what was a dynamic story with a rigid and limited one that doesn't really sound like me. All morning long, I felt as if I had misplaced something until I realized what day it is. It's July 19th. And even though we are in this never-ending year that has turned our worlds upside down, it's still a day of mourning and love and celebration and sadness for me. Losing the people we love is a part of life. In their physical absence, their energetic presence seems to grow exponentially. When I finally allowed myself to feel some true feelings this morning, I was instantly reminded of what it felt like to receive the text message that he had died. I remember how lonely and unsupported my world became just in an instant. I remember how wrong it suddenly felt to be living in Los Angeles. I remember taking an immediate inventory of who I had surrounded myself with and how toxic my circle had become. I remember thinking something had to change, and I promised that I would be okay with whatever change would show itself to be. Within a month, I was sitting on a beach in Oahu, watching the sunrise and swimming with turtles. One month after that, I was packing up my life. One month after that, I loaded up my car at 4 a.m. and started driving east. I intended to spend six weeks in New York City with my friends and family before driving back to California. I ended up staying on the East Coast for nine months, and it was a gestation period full of complete surrender, intense mourning, so much discomfort, and diving headfirst, not just putting one toe in, but headfirst into the stream of life, and I realized how often I avoid that. There's an old myth that our entire body completely regenerates every seven years, and it said that none of the cells in your body from seven years ago exist in your body today. And every time I hear that, I don't even care if it's true or not. And I'm sure someone's going to send me a message and be like, that's not true. <laughs> I don't care. I just like the idea of it. I like that we can be reborn from the ashes of all that we've been and move through our life with newness. During our last conversation, he told me that he was afraid to die. He felt as if he had not done the best he could do, hadn't been the greatest man, and had failed me in particular as a surrogate father, and he was burdened with regret. I have listened to a lot of confessions in my day. I've been a psychotherapist, a crisis counselor, a group facilitator. I have listened to endless shares and fifth steps, and I truly believe that no one is as bad or as forsaken as they think that they are and that we all deserve to experience the full spectrum of our feelings. After I listened to his confession, I remember telling him that it sounded like he did the best he could do at the time, and that he'd actually done a great job, and that he should reincarnate if heaven or hell wasn't all it was cracked up to be. I told him the next time around, I could be his mom, and we would both figure some things out. I remember that it made him smile after a night of tears. 
He nodded and said that it sounded like a good plan. This time of forced stillness in our lives is also a gestational period, and I forget that sometimes, and I am extremely critical of how I navigate each step. I find myself distanced or cut off from certain feelings and experiences because I don't believe that I am handling this pandemic in the best way possible. On some level, I am ashamed that other people are walking through this time with ease and that I'm getting it all wrong. I abuse myself with those rare stories of one or two people who have started businesses and thrived during 2020. I create an unattainable standard for myself for not doing the same, and it helps absolutely no one, including me. I would like to imagine that all of the grace and peace that I shared with my uncle that day during his confession, his most vulnerable moment, is also always available to me, even and especially if I feel that I don't deserve it. There were some big feelings in that journal entry that I just read, and I would love to tell you that as I'm reading it one year later, I've processed everything in a healthy way, and it's all neatly tucked away into its respective corners. I really do want to sit here and tell you that I have a whole new perspective, and that the pandemic blues and losses have shifted into lessons and wins just effortlessly. But they haven't. Not in my life. Apparently, I am in the extended dance remix of that gestational period I mentioned. And if I was ready to be done with it in July of 2020... You can imagine how I feel about it in July of 2021. Here I am, like many of us, whether we want to admit it or not, in this long, drawn-out chapter of mourning the life we had, the life we were working towards, and the opportunities we lost. Fluctuating between a desire to invite mindfulness into all of the feelings and experiences that have come up during this time, and the intense desire to numb it or run away from it, or just not be so conscious of it all the time. It is a time of messiness, uncertainty, and maybes. Maybe this is over. Maybe it's starting up again. Maybe I'm okay. Maybe I'm lucky. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm failing. Maybe I should quit my job or move or pull the trigger on that one thing I always wanted to do. Maybe I'm the only one just not getting it right during this time. And while I know that there's a powerful spiritual energy in detaching from outcomes by introducing the concepts of like, maybe so, maybe not, or we'll see, I can't help but feel as if I am less of a spiritual giant and more of a confused mess these days. Maybe you do too. My surrender to this year has felt a bit forced, and usually I am the person who views surrender as simply transferring my energy over to the winning side. How many times have I led yoga classes and talked about surrender and just made it sound easy and flowing, and it really hasn't felt like that lately. This last year, surrender felt like a bank robbery. And as I processed all of those feelings this week, I thought of a short story that I heard in a meeting once, and I wanted to share it with you. It goes like this. A farmer and his son had a beloved horse who helped the family earn a living. One day, the horse ran away, and their neighbors exclaimed, Your horse ran away. What terrible luck. The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. A few days later, the horse returned home 
leading a few wild horses back to the farm as well. The neighbor shouted out, Your horse has returned and brought several horses home with him. What great luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. Later that week, the farmer's son was trying to break one of the horses, and she threw him to the ground, breaking his leg. The neighbors cried, Your son broke his leg, what terrible luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. A few weeks later, soldiers from the National Army marched through town recruiting all boys for the army. They did not take the farmer's son because he had a broken leg. The neighbor shouted, your boy is spared with tremendous luck, to which the farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not. We'll see. Can we love, accept, and embrace the parts of ourselves that have struggled through the messiness of this time while simultaneously walking towards the mindfulness of that farmer? That's the question this week. Can I be present for what is while letting go of what I think it should be? And I don't think that our highest, most evolved self is the goal. And I never want you to listen to this podcast and think that that's what I'm talking about. You know, it's not about if we've reached or maintained that or that we failed in some way if we haven't. I think it's the process of intervening when we do find ourselves attached to the story pausing in those moments where we lack mindfulness and shifting our gaze towards surrender and loving detachment. And it's way easier said than done, but not really a bad way to live life. When I was the director of a cancer support center in LA, we had a wonderful practitioner on the staff who offered Qigong sessions to our patients. And I remember one of the people leaving a session with him and telling me the pep talk he gave them as they were walking out the door. He said, You were a grape. You loved being a grape. You sat for hours in the sunshine in beautiful green vineyards. Everyone admired you. You felt full of life and radiant and just brimming with possibility. Then, by chance, you were picked from the vine and all of your fear started to rise to the surface. You were brought into situations you didn't understand and taken through transformation processes you probably never would have chosen. And after all the pushing and pulling and stomping and fermenting, you transformed into liquid. Your shape is far more flowing and expansive now. You move with an ease you never knew was possible. You can shapeshift. And while you miss the sunshine in your life on the vine and the anticipation of being picked, you have now been turned into wine. All of that sunshine is within you. Those vineyards are within you, and you have been transformed into an element that can exist in exquisite perfection for hundreds of years. You even get better with age. All that has happened has transformed you into a thing you never saw coming and never knew was possible for you. I love that he shared that, and I love that the patient came out and shared that with me, and it's really helped me through the years as I'm going through different transformational processes that I definitely wouldn't have picked for myself. All of our lessons are both fortunately and unfortunately existing in our imperfections and interruptions. I'm not saying you have to love it or write gratitude lists about it. There is absolutely no forced positivity here. I'm just offering some encouragement for you to crack open the door a little bit more and let the light come in. I'm doing it myself these days, and I find myself bracing every day for more unknowns and twists and turns, 
whether that's in our collective experience or just my own dark and twisty experience. After my uncle died, my mother found a note that he had scribbled to himself and placed in a book, and she sent it to me. I love his words, and I think about them a lot when I'm feeling weighed down or out of alignment, and I've read them over and over again, especially this year. Maybe they are exactly what you need to hear today. This is what he wrote. What do you think God will say to you when you die and get there? Welcome. You struggled a lot, flopped a lot, and came back time and again. You said you depended on me for grace and strength and help. Here it is. Welcome. You didn't make it to the ranks of heroes. I did not expect you to. Or to the contemplatives. Again, I did not plan that for you. I just planned for you to be who you are. To struggle. To work with what I gave you. Falter and fall and get up to fight and work all over again. I love that. I can barely read it without crying. (laughs) So the name of this podcast is Love Letters and Mixtapes, and the inspiration for that was a desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear, whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. And if I was going to write a love letter to my younger self about mourning, mindfulness, messiness, and maybes, it would probably go something like this. You haven't failed. I know you don't believe me, but I'll say it again. You haven't failed. You are doing exactly what you came here to do even and especially when it feels as if you are the farthest point from where you are supposed to be. Sometimes the space we are in and the energies moving through us feel cumbersome, unattractive, and out of alignment with who we want to be. Making room for all of these things at your energetic table allows you to see them with clarity, call them by their right names, and walk hand in hand with them instead of being chased by them. If you're mourning who you were what you had, or what you were about to become, I encourage you to make space for mindfulness, messiness, and all the maybes that unfold along the way. You are not alone. You are not too far gone. You are stepping into a season of readiness with all the tools you need for expansion already within you. We can't wait to witness your ease and evolution. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. Check out this week's playlist on my personal Spotify account and join me on Instagram at love letters and mixtapes. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio.